Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. Now, I am recording to you from a different location again, but hopefully this one's a little bit better. I actually discovered that uh, the co-working space I use has a little recording room. But for some annoying reason, for a recording room, there's a fan going on the whole time. I don't know if we're picking this up or not. <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope that that has been factored in. Otherwise, it would make a recording room rather pointless. No interview this week. I am still arranging some new ones, covering quite a wide variety of topics, actually. So have those to look forward to. So just a relatively short catch-up show with some links that caught my interest and some updates from me. Let's get started. Revisiting a topic I seem to have uh, come up against quite a bit over the past few weeks. This is an article on 1.0 from Andrew Maynard called How to Ensure Our Digital Legacy Isn't Lost to the Future. Uh, he uses the term bit rot that was actually coined by Vince Cerf, one of the acclaimed uh, creators of the internet who I have had the good fortune to see talk, actually. But this is a, a sort of strange article um, where he compares... Um, the activity of a team that were tasked actually in the late 70s uh, the, with the waste isolation pilot plant, um, a dump of toxic radioactive waste that obviously no one should go near for a very long time, but how do you use sinography that people will, will recognize in the future? And this was something that they looked at. And then in the 90s, a team set about to try and create icons that people would be able to understand who knows when in the future. And this is kind of a similar problem with some of the digital media we have now, but it's more of a tooling problem. How do we know people will still be able to, uh, to access and understand things that seem obvious to us now? And they came up with a somewhat unique idea of using statues, like sort of foreboding-looking statues, uh, thorns and, and sharp, oppressive-looking uh, statues to put people off and kind of understand that there was danger here. And then fast-forwarding to when Vince Cerf coined this term in 2008, we are somewhat guilty of thinking that everything we record now will last forever. And, of course, there are many, many examples of this not being the case, even in short term. And then there was, of course, the, the tooling problem. How do you find something to even interpret it, as we have discussed? And his general piece of advice, which is, you know, it's an interesting article, but not a massively sort of strong area of advice beyond what would be making sure you, you stick to using standard formats, making sure that you maybe, for very important things, keep a, uh, an analog copy. <laughs> it's like a handwriting a note, for example, which is not always possible, but um, still... It's an idea for some very important information, but keep that secure, of course. The notebook of your passwords is not secure in the short term. But I suppose in the meantime, just realize that nothing online is going to last forever. And think about those, those, those non-digital signs or those less transient digital signs that you will use to keep track of your information in the future. And hopefully others will be able to too. Continuing on a little bit of a look at the past, and of course, this is, again, a perfect opportunity for me to promote my new podcast, the first episode. I should be releasing a new one soon uh, with Sinclair Target talking about uh, computing history on his blog, the 2-Bit History blog. This is a, a website I came across that I hadn't heard of before called the Version Museum, a visual history of your favorite technology, tying in very nicely to the previous article. And the one that uh, particularly crossed uh, my news feeds was uh, the Mac OS 9 installer. 
Uh, and this was a look back at understanding what we thought of as the internet in January 2000. And I remember this, actually. I remember when you used to have to connect to the internet with a dial-up modem. You needed a service provider. People didn't really understand what the point of the internet was. It was still kind of uh, a technology that a lot of people were skeptical about. So you really had to walk people through what it meant and what it could mean to them. And it's, again, a fascinating insight. And actually, then I got led down a rabbit warren on this website of finding even more uh, looks, look backs at uh, visual installers and operating systems, especially I think the classic Mac OSs are there. Uh, Mac OS 10 is there. Just looking at these screenshots and seeing how things have changed over the years. And at this time, only 4.6% of the Earth's population were using the internet. 250 million people. It's quite a lot. Uh, and 1999 was claimed as the year of the net. And I think I remember this. And even in the UK, this was a BBC article, 37% of adults were using the internet, which is actually relatively high. Um, but we still talked about things like cyberspace and had all these very, very uh, grandiose ideas of what the internet would be, which still hasn't massively materialized. But uh, we're still in progress on some of these. But just going through this OS9 video is great. I remember this old font they used to use, registering your computer with these very, very 3D buttons. Um, yeah, tell me more about the internet was <laughs> an option here. I don't think that would be the same anymore. Uh, and the explanation of the internet is it is a worldwide network of computers that you can access using your computer and, wait for it, a telephone line. Then, of course, we have the good old World Wide Web. I don't know if many people even realize what WWW means these days. For your entertainment, your software, and for your computer, it shows you a great picture of you connecting to your family with the internet through email. That was the only option. <laughs> well, actually, that's not true, but it was the most obvious one for many people. An internet service provider using a phone cable, that horrible screeching sound that you used to get all the time. Local phone calls. Yep. <laughs> Anyone who used to share houses with internet fans like myself will remember this. You used to have to dial up to the internet and it wasn't instantaneous. And here is a web browser, Internet Explorer on the Mac, which is now back again. Uh, strangely, well, sort of. It's uh, now Edge, of course, but a browser is back on the Mac made by Microsoft. And, of course, the Apple iMac, the Power Mac G4 at the time had modems. Uh, I've noticed macOS still ships with modem scripts, even though I don't know who uses modems anymore, but it still ships with them. You can probably safely delete them. It explains what URLs are. It explains what browsing the Internet means. It explains what email is. This was a very early version of Apple Mail. And, of course, you then had to hang up the phone when you were done because you might keep paying for your access if you were still connected. Uh, if you were very lucky, and there's a few options listed here, you might have had a cable modem or a DSL modem, but it was highly unlikely for most people. And then, of course, we lead ourselves into the wonderful world of the dominance of Internet Explorer and uh, the cases in the 90s and early 2000s of... Microsoft's dominance in the browser space. But that is another story. Next, and interestingly, this is a this is a thread I hadn't noticed right until now, but this is a very appropriate connection between these two stories. Next is an article on the Washington Post from Reed Elbergotti, 
called How Apple Uses Its App Store to Copy the Best Ideas. And back in the OS 9 days was an application called Sherlock, which you use for searching all sorts of things, including online results. A little bit of a prototype to Siri and a whole bunch of other things. There has been this common term among Mac fans for many years called Sherlocking, when Apple takes something someone else was doing and replaces it with their own tool. And this is basically what this article is about, but specifically around the App Store, mentioning that Apple has access to a lot of data that you do and don't have access to and knows how people are using your application and, of course, can see when something is very popular and take advantage of it. And interestingly here, there's an interview with the founder of Clue, which is a Berlin startup. I have met the founder. Uh, and now they are starting to roll in some of its features, which is predominantly fertility and period prediction, into its own health app, Sherlocking Clue. Uh, I guess you have to keep ahead of the game somehow. This is difficult when it's the default options um, involved. It also mentions uh, applications like Measure, which used to be, um, that functionality used to be supplied by third parties. Duet Display, which I also use to to have a double display onto my um, iPad, my older iPad, is now starting to become part of macOS. SwiftKey also got copied by iOS keyboards and many other things here. And of course, it references the Sherlock. So what can you do about it? Well, I guess you just have to stay ahead of the game. You have to be flexible. And sometimes I guess you have to admit that your idea is gone and it is time to move on and try something new. And this is especially true now that Apple is moving more and more into services to make its money. Uh, I think app developers will have to realize that they cannot count on anything anymore moving forward with iOS. A little bit more history. This is on Tech Beacon by Mark Conway covering why your COBOL code isn't going anywhere. Uh, it is actually COBOL's 60th birthday, so this is why I think there's been a lot of COBOL news recently. Um, and the interesting thing with COBOL is that it's one of these strange languages that has kept going and hasn't really uh, got stuck with old paradigms and old design ideas that people, especially developers, get bored with. So COBOL is still around. It's still actually evolving. It's still adapting to the modern enterprise. COBOL started back in the paper-based computing system. And this was in the days of assembler. I remember doing assembler for my first units at university. It was like doing Latin if you're studying uh, languages. Fortran and then COBOL. IBM went with COBOL, which kind of kept it going. And it excelled at data storage and processing and reporting, which is basically what computers have always really done, if you think about it, but especially back in those days. It was very popular on mainframes. And it, thus, it ended up being used in a lot of business-critical applications. A lot of people will say that its precise data layout was what gave it its advantage, and especially with its memory management. You could be very specific about how it would store said data in memory, which in those days was exceptionally important, prior to when 8 or 16 or even 32 gigabytes was kind of a given. You had to be very, very careful about how you stored things. And it was also supported by all the common uh, architectures that were used from then until now. 8-bit, 16-bit, 32-bit, etc., etc. RISC even, which is still also used in many applications, even though its kind of consumer heyday is gone. So it was very flexible 
um, from an implementation perspective, but also from how it could run. It also has few dependencies. It has a very large standard library, unlike a lot of other applications. The interesting thing here, um, Java has 50 reserved words. COBOL has hundreds. So it comes with a lot built in, whereas a lot of other languages take this more modular approach. And we could argue whether one is better over the other, but that is just the fact about it. And then I guess one of the other things is COBOL is actually just kind of hard to replace. Many people will say it needs to be replaced, but uh, can't always justify why. It still works fairly well. It still is integratable with other um, applications, especially in the days of microservices. So why? Why replace it seems to be... So is COBOL still here by design or is it still here because of inertia? That, of course, depends on the use case, I suppose. And the language continues to evolve. It is still popular. It is still used. It is still developed. And most interestingly, it's fully backward compatible with old COBOL, which is quite amazing for a language that is 60 years old. Finally, Richard Stallman, the downfall of Richard Stallman, or as this article says from Stephen Livy on Wired, Richard Stallman and the fall of the clueless nerd, or if you like, the brilliant jerk coining the Atlassian term. So Richard Stallman has been in the news a little bit recently, the creator of GNU and the founder of the Free Software Foundation. Firstly, he went and did a talk at Microsoft, and I think many thought that that might have been his downfall, because then a week later, he uh, resigned from MIT and from the Free Software Foundation, but nothing to do with the Microsoft presentations, which is strange, kind of, that it all happened in the same very short period, actually over his remarks about Jeffrey Epstein and Marvin Minsky. Um, so more about his comments around especially women and people in power's relationship with them, but much like many other uh, brilliant jerks, he's not always been the easiest person to deal with. Um, famously in the past, his rider for doing talks has been released. Uh, some of his communicate, well, he operates in the public. So I guess he's never hidden the fact he's a brilliant jerk, but maybe we just excused it until he sort of tipped himself over the edge, I guess. And this has had a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of overspill into MIT, especially because uh, Epstein was also um, an investor in um, MIT. So they've sort of been tired on both sides of the brush, if that's even a possible analogy, a possible phrase. And then I don't really want to go into detail. This article goes into a lot more detail if you want to understand some of the comments that he had about Epstein's victims. And one of the standard responses of um, basically, in summary, kind of... Uh, were, were they were they really assaulted um, or was it willing? There's this kind of comment that comes up a lot sometimes, especially, yeah, I don't want to go into the detail too much. Uh, here, you can go and read some more and read around. There's actually quite a lot of coverage of this, unsurprisingly, and you can form your own opinions on this. But these comments are not acceptable anymore and he will not be the last and neither should he be. The world has changed, the world has moved on, and we cannot excuse geniuses anymore. Just because they are responsible for something amazing doesn't give them the excuse to, uh, to, to not match what society expects these days, I guess. Wrapping up, I think I will present quite a fascinating and very long blog post on the Stack Overflow blog put together by Ben Popper which was from Joel Spolsky, who I've also seen speak, and Clive Thompson discussing the past, present, and future of coding. Um, hopefully, they're mostly focusing on some of the positive and focusing on the uh, positive for the future. Moving on 
from tales of brilliant jerks to hopefully uh, increasingly brilliant but less jerky jerks in the future. There's quite a lot. I won't cover it all here. But if you're interested in hearing that kind of or and reading, uh, it was uh, based upon an interview, that kind of discussion, then have a read. Um, it's quite a fascinating insight from two people who have been responsible for a few projects that we all use on a fairly wide scale. So always interesting to hear the stories from kind of behind the curtain, as it were. And that was my links for the week. Quite a, an interesting mix. Um, I would certainly be interested in hearing your feedback on some of those, um, especially some of the ones around the way that our technology space is changing, hopefully mostly for the positive. I've been doing quite a bit of work back on my book on kind of ethics for developers. So I've been thinking about these subjects quite a lot. So I'd be interested to hear your opinions from some of what we've discussed here. Or if you just feel like sharing nostalgic memories with me as a trip down memory lane on some of the uh, the technology from the past, whether you feel like having that serious conversation or that light conversation, I'd be happy to hear from you. You can find more details about how to do that at christianchiller.com slash contact. Also on the same website, you can find previous episodes of the podcast. Coming up soon will also be the episode of the Write the Docs podcast that we just recorded, uh, fresh after the Write the Docs conference, which was pretty amazing. I'm still kind of tired from it. I have finally started publishing some of my write-ups of interviews from KubeCon. Um, and there's also a few more um, articles up there from other events I have been at too recently. And also, if you want to meet in person, I will be at DevCon in Osaka in Japan, beginning of October. And then I'll be back in Berlin for ApacheCon in the middle to end of October. And now most of it, I'm, I'm starting to take a little bit of a break from some events as we move forward to the end of the year. But I'm always happy to, to have a chat if you feel like it. If you've enjoyed the show, then please rate, review, share. I'm also now registered for any of you crypto fans as a bat publisher if you use the Brave browser. So you can tip me there if you like as well. And then I can use that to then tip other people. That's a kind of a cool idea. I'm hoping to arrange an interview with a Brave developer actually quite soon. So maybe we'll talk some more about that in the coming weeks. So in the meantime, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.